Turn now, if you would, with me to John chapter 12. Gospel of John, if you have a Bible with you, chapter 12. Uh, we won't put it up on the screen just yet, but uh, we'll, we'll read that passage in a few moments. This morning's uh, message is called Jesus, Our Treasure. We've been focusing on Jesus the last few weeks. We spent a couple of weeks uh, looking at Jesus, our Savior, and uh, just taking time to, to understand what he's saved us from and how he has redeemed us and to appreciate in a deeper way Jesus, our Savior. And uh, last week we talked about Jesus, our Lord. Often we Christians uh, speak of Jesus as my Savior and my Lord, right? And uh, so we looked at Jesus, our Lord, and what does that mean? And how can we grow in, in uh, living under his Lordship in a joyful and fulfilling way? And, uh, and that was good. This morning, uh, Jesus, our treasure, uh, his worth, his value, his preciousness to us. I would say that one of the uh, greatest <clears throat> hindrances, one of the greatest hindrances to the church living out the gospel and proclaiming the gospel in our current world is that far too many Christians do not hold Jesus to be their treasure. Your treasure that you value above all other things. It will show up in our lives. And so we'll talk about that this morning and try to understand that a little bit more. Jesus, our Savior. So we've talked about that and we, we, uh, we went through some of the, um, the, 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 our understanding of what he saved us from. You know, there's a discipline in theology called soteriology. And uh, it's, it's related to the word salvation. It's a study of salvation and what it means. Uh, but you know what? We can be experts. We could have a PhD in soteriology, and yet still something is missing. You could know all the facts, all the doctrines, all the points about what the salvation of, of Christ is, but something could be missing in your heart and in your life. It could be up here, but it needs to go 18 inches south down here. Jesus as Lord. <clears throat> uh, we looked into a little bit just the compelling greatness and worthiness of Christ that we should follow him and embrace him as our Lord and, uh, and let his will shape our will. And yet something could still be missing there as well. Uh, after I leave church here, I could be driving home down south uh, of here on Highway 6 and I could come to an intersection and there could be a police person there, man or woman, directing traffic. And, uh, and I want to go straight, and they're saying, no, sir, you have to turn right. So I would turn right. And I would, uh, I would uh, s submit to the authority of that person standing on the corner. And yet, do I know that police officer? No. Do, am I a friend of that police officer? No. Would I do exactly what that police officer says? Yes. And it could be the same way with, with the Lord Jesus in our life. We could do the things that he says, but still there could be something lacking. And it could be a, a warmth, an affection, and a relationship. And that's what I mean by Jesus being our treasure. Individual by individual by individual, and then a whole church. And, uh, and so I want to talk about that further this morning. So I was asking myself, 
how, what text could I use? What passage of scripture? Is there a story? Is there a text that I could, that I could take us through to help us uh, just sort of open, the, open our eyes a little bit more about Jesus, our treasure? And I thought of one. I, I hope it was from God. I think it was. It comes out of John chapter 12, the first eight verses. And so we're going to, uh, we're going to read that. Just before we read it, uh, in the Middle Eastern culture of Jesus' day, <clears throat> if you were a guest at someone's home and you arrived at the door and came for dinner, the host would greet you at the door and uh, they would have a little jar or container of uh, fragrant smelling oil and they would uh, anoint your head with a couple of drops. That was a customary thing that was done in a home when you were visiting. You might think, that, that's weird. Of course, they might think it's weird that we put, you know, deodorant under our arms and, and slap on some aftershave. It, it was about fragrance. And uh, they didn't have showers back then, you know, and, or deodorant. And, uh, and so they would, they would add fragrance and put fragrance on their body to mask the daily odors that we, that we come up with. And, uh, and so you would, you would, it, was a, it was a sign of, of, of honor and, and, a, and a polite thing to do. And so bear that in mind as we... Uh, as we proceed through the passage. And um, <clears throat> this passage that we're going to read, it's, it's about a, a social gathering. It's about an incident where Jesus was a dinner guest. And it's about a woman who was present there in that gathering and how she expressed in an unusual way her affection and her honor and her gratefulness to her Lord. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that this simple text would take us by the hand and lead us into a place of love and warmth and admiration for you. May it teach us something, something more of how we might treasure you every day in our lives. Let's read John 12, 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, <clears throat> so we know exactly when this happened. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, <clears throat> who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That's something that John tells us some years after that they maybe discovered had been going on. Verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. <clears throat> you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. <clears throat> I'd like to take us back through this passage and just uh, 
notice a few things that I think are pertinent to the subject of treasuring Jesus in our life. This woman, Mary, obviously treasured Jesus. And our goal this morning is that we could learn to do so more as well in our life. <clears throat> this passage is, uh, this incident is given to us three times in the Gospels, out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of them cover this incident. And uh, uh, Matthew 26 describes it, and it says that it was uh, in the house of Simon the leper. We don't know anything else about Simon the leper. Must probably was a, a fellow named Simon who had a house who was probably healed of leprosy, and he was welcoming Jesus into his home. We do know that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were present in the, in the gathering, in the group. And, uh, <clears throat> and so that's where, uh, that's where Jesus was. There are some slight differences in, uh, in, in Matthew, Mark, and John's passage. In Matthew and Mark, uh, it says that the, the woman is not named, but she is named in our te text here in John. She's, she's Mary, uh, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But in Matthew and Mark, she's not named. It's just, she's just a woman. And, uh, and she uh, pours the fragrant oil on Jesus' head, it says. In John, it says she poured it on his feet. Uh, I, when I see things like that, I just assume she did both. Uh, she got some on his head, was probably what you would start out with as a guest, but then she really cut loose and she started pouring it at his feet because at the feet of Jesus is a very symbolic and powerful place, submission to him in all that he is. And she went there finally with her oil. <clears throat> and so those are some of the differences. And there's a few others that I'll point out as well, but they're the same incident and the three different writers fill in all the details as we go through the story. <clears throat> I want you to notice, first of all, that this incident where Jesus was treasured in a way that stands head and shoulders above uh, many other passages of Scripture, it didn't happen uh, in the temple. It didn't happen in a religious place. It didn't happen in a synagogue. It happened in an everyday home. And uh, there's, there, this is, this is one, one thing for you and me to notice, is that you don't have to be in church to express your love for Jesus or to treasure him. You can do it anywhere, in your home, at the workplace, uh, or on the sports field. I mean, whatever it is, uh, we can treasure Jesus anywhere. It is not a set-aside religious experience. It's meant to be part of everyday life. And so that's where it happened here. The second thing to notice is uh, it says that Lazarus lived there. Or no, sorry, it says that Lazarus lived in that town, Bethany, and he was there at that place at this where it happened. It says Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now that happened just a few days before this. And uh, the only thing I would point out here is that in order to treasure Jesus, we have to have, we have to give some thought to what he's done for us. Now, it was very obvious what Jesus had done for Lazarus and also <coughs> for all of Lazarus' friend and family. Jesus had raised them from the dead and they were overflowing with gratefulness and amazement and so out came this expression of treasuring, only it only came through one person, Mary. Uh, but uh, anyway, for you and for me, in order for us to see Jesus become more and more of a precious treasure to us and in our lives, we need to do some thinking 
and some work into looking into what he has done for us. That is ultimately expressed in our salvation, what he did for us on the cross. But I'm thinking of day-to-day stuff too. Are you a grateful person? Are you a thankful person? Do you think about life? Canada Day weekend, do you think about this great country that we live in? It's got faults, but it's wonderful. It's one of the most wonderful places on. You're thanking God for that? Do you thank God for, for various things in your, your life, your work, your, your house that you live in, your family, your children, your wife, your husband, your, your health, you, all kinds of the trees, the birds? Think about what Jesus has done for us, how he has blessed your life. I guess I should say count your blessings. And out of it will come a new attitude towards the God who gave you those blessings. Treasure him in that way. The next thing to notice here is uh, in verse 2. It says, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Remember another passage where Martha was serving? Martha, was, she, she was just a, a crazy serving lady. Um, <laughs> she just served and served and served all the time. God bless her. Jesus even had to slow her down there on one other occasion so that she could hear what he had to say. But uh, here's Martha serving again. It's just who she was. And uh, uh, so she was serving. But it says that... Uh, What's it say about Lazarus? Well, Lazarus was among those reclining at table with him. And I would say that in order to treasure Jesus and to learn to treasure Jesus, you have to recline at table with him. What's that mean? Well, obviously in that situation, uh, tables were not with chairs around them and tables about, you know, 30 inches high off the floor, but they were lower down and you would sit on the floor, lean back on cushions, and the table would kind of be pulled up closer to you. But uh, that's what it means, reclining at table with him. You were reclining on cushions and pillows. But what I see here is that Lazarus was just hanging out with Jesus. He was sitting with him. How long was he reclining at table with him? Don't know, but there was no rush. And in order for us to get to know the Lord more, and to appreciate him more and more in a sincere, authentic way that leads to treasuring, you have to spend time with him in an unhurried way. We're a very rushed, hurried, busy culture. There's a pastor in the States, author. You've probably heard of him, John Mark Comer. He's written a book called The Ruthless Elimination of of hurry, and it's an all-out attack on our hurried culture. But the problem is, is that we hurry through our time with Jesus, too. Friends, you got to recline at table with him. I know some days you're more hurried than others, but you and I need to ruthlessly eliminate that hurriedness that spoils our relationship with Jesus that makes it shallow. We just rip through a devotion, we read our chapter, we slam our Bible shut, and off we race. Maybe we've been giving too much time to other things that are less worthy than him. But anyway, I encourage you and me to think about reclining at table with Jesus. It's very important. This... uh, perfume that Mary poured on Jesus. It says it was a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, 
One commentator I read uh, suggested these things came from India uh, through the trade routes that existed in those days for sure. I don't know, was it, but we know it was expensive. And the, the other uh, stories in Matthew and Mark uh, tell us that it, the, the disciples estimated it to be worth 300 denarii. Uh, denarii was a, a laborer's daily wage, so 300 days' work, almost a year's salary, uh, like is what it says here. So that was very expensive. What do you make, 50000 a year, 60000 um, Depending, of course, but uh, that's a lot of money. And this 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 perfume was worth that amount of money and everybody in the room seems to have known that and they were shocked to see what she did with it. It was very personal for her. It might have been left to her as a gift from her great-grandmother or her mother, perhaps a wedding gift, something to be used all of her life, used very sparingly and carefully because of its preciousness. But look what she did with it. Oh my goodness. I like the line next that says, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I read it again. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The others, Matthew and Mark, don't have that line. John put it in there. A man named William MacDonald once wrote, no house is so filled with pleasant aroma as the house where Jesus is given his rightful place. Again, no house is so filled with pleasant aroma as the house where Jesus is given his rightful place. And so he was, in this occasion, in this passage, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Is this auditorium filled with some kind of spiritual fragrance as we sing and as we worship. Let's make it our goal. You sang very well this morning. Let's keep it up. Let's fill this place with a spiritual sweetness. <clears throat> Perhaps only God can literally smell it, but uh, let's, let's fill the place. How about your home? Is it filled with the fragrance? Is your home a place where Jesus has given his rightful place? I hope so. It's part of treasuring him. Let's keep moving. What Mary did was unusual. Uh, We'll we'll look at the reactions in a moment, but people were shocked at what she did. And you know what? I I sort of think that after it was all over, she was kind of shocked too. Like, what have I done? $50,000 worth of perfume. It's all gone. And then she probably thought, it's not all gone. It'll last forever. I used it well. But she did something unusual, something odd, something strange that wasn't usually done. And you know what? We do our best treasuring when we forget about ourselves. We're we're humans, right? We're so self-conscious. I'm I'm very self-conscious about certain things. I'll often have a little conversation in my head, oh, I can't do that. What would people think? I know you're like that too. Well, maybe not all of you. But But, uh, we do our best treasuring when we forget about ourselves. Mary just sort of forgot about herself for a moment and she, she, she did this out of a loving and worshipful impulse. Oh, we're told you shouldn't be impulsive. I know, I know. 
And here's one case where it was very appropriate, but it came out of a heart that really loved the Lord. Let's look at some of the reactions to what she did. Two big ones. Um, The first big one is the reaction of Judas Iscariot, where he says, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold? And the money given to the poor, it was worth a year's wages. This is John, Matthew and Mark, Put it this way, why this waste? Uh, Literally, what was said. And it doesn't say Judas said it. It said the disciples or those present said that. So Judas wasn't the only one. I think he was maybe the spokesperson for the group. And he said what they were all muttering amongst themselves. And what they were saying was, why this waste? Uh, we'll, We'll examine that a little more in a moment as well. In the others, Matthew and Mark, it says they were indignant. Both of them say the disciples were indignant. And uh, I looked up the word indignant, and it's a Greek word, which I can't even pronounce, agan kateo or something like that. Agan means much, and kateo means grief. Much grief. Have you ever heard someone say, he caused me a lot of grief? It just means you're worked up emotionally. And they were. They were staring in disbelief at what Mary was doing. And they were thinking, this is a waste. And Judas, practical Judas, and the others were being practical too, thought we could have have sold this perfume. Look at all the money. Look at all the good we could have done with it. We could have given this to help a lot of poor people, they said. Are they right? They're right. That's true. But something else was going on here today as well. Now there's another reaction in reaction to their reaction. So they reacted indignantly, called it a waste, and rebuked Mary in the whole situation. So Jesus reacted to their reaction. In Matthew and Mark, he says to them, leave her alone. It's like a parent scolding a child, one child who's picking on another child. Well, no, sorry, it's right here in John. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Matthew and Mark have him then say, she has done a good deed for me. And in the New International Version, it says, she has done a beautiful thing. So what is it? A waste? Depends who you are, doesn't it? If you're a practical disciple, it's a waste. But if you're Christ himself, it's a beautiful thing. Worship is a beautiful thing. Not just worship, but loving expression of of your affection for your Lord. Another translation says, she's done a lovely deed. So uh, in uh, in Greek, there's two words for good deed. New American puts it a little bit dryly, and it says, she's done a good deed for me. But the NIV uh, elaborates on it. I think they get it a little better. One type of good deed is just simply a good deed. It's the right thing to do. And, and that's a good deed, right? But there's another Greek word for good deed, and it not only means the right thing to do, it literally means a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, suppose, uh, I don't know, suppose you 
Suppose you're walking downtown and there's a, a needy person there and they ask you for a handout and, and you give them a toonie, uh, you know, something that we face here and there, and that would be a good deed. But if you said, uh, if you put your arm around that person and, and you had an extra half hour and you said, come with me, let's have a burger and a coffee, that'd be a beautiful thing. There's, there's just that difference in it where, where relationship and love comes into it, not just a good deed. And so Jesus says, she's done a beautiful thing for me. That was the the Greek word that was used here. You know, we're practical people, aren't we? We believe in being practical. It's important to be practical, not, not just airy-fairy up in the, high in the sky. And, and uh, we, we want to have our feet on the ground as Christians. We want to do practical things. And so the disciples were thinking in practical terms. And practicality is good, don't get me wrong. But something beyond practical needed to be done on this particular day. So Jesus said, uh, she's done a good thing. He said, leave her alone. He defended Mary. And he called it a beautiful thing. And he said, she's done what she could. That's in Matthew and Mark. She's done what she could. On that particular day, it was important that she do what she did. And so he said, she has done what she could. Maybe Mary didn't have, maybe Mary, Mary wasn't very eloquent and not, not, not great at putting words together. So she couldn't preach a lovely uh, sermon in the home there, just, you know, just a toast to Jesus and outcome flowing the wonderful words that would just honor him so much. Maybe she couldn't do that, but she did what she could. She had this perfume. I could almost see her... Uh, Jesus comes to the door and she's, she's thinking, I've, I've got to, oh, where's the anointing oil? And, and uh, she, she has this perfume with her and she, she comes and she anoints his head as is customary. But then something takes over in her and she, she gets carried away. And he sits down and all of a sudden she comes to his feet and, and, uh, and she broke the container. And it all spilled out on his feet. And she might have thought, oh my, oh my, oh my, what have I done? $50,000 worth of, oh, my, what have I done? And then Jesus, and then the, the criticism comes from the disciples. And, and then Jesus stops it and he says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. And then he says, and he makes provision for something. And this isn't in our version here, but it's in Matthew and Mark. He says, what this woman has done will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. He made provision that this act, it was so beautiful and so right and so important. Jesus said, I'm going to see to it that people in China and people in Guelph and people in Chile and people in Argentina know what this woman did. It's that good and that important. She treasured him. She got criticized for being impractical, but she was not wrong. She was very, very right. <clears throat> three practical things before we go application <clears throat> three words sanctification, service and witness number one sanctification sanctification is the ongoing process in a Christian's life of becoming more like Jesus of growing in holiness of growing in Christ-likeness, of, of sinning less in our lives, overcoming those sinful habits, those, those, 
sinful things that we do, that we struggle with, that we make three steps forward on Monday, and two steps backward on Tuesday, and one step forward on Wednesday, and four steps backward. You know, <laughs> sanctification is a struggle in a battle, and we fight against our own personal sins, and uh, sometimes we, we make so very little progress. Just one little hint here that I think is important. I think treasuring Jesus is a key part of growing in sanctification, of growing in Christ-likeness, of just treasuring him and valuing him. So often we approach overcoming sin by using our willpower and using decisions. I'm going to make a decision. I'm not going to do that anymore. Or by willpower, I'm going to beat this thing if, if it kills me, you know, and, and we're, we're it's all our own strength. It's all my own power, which runs out of gas pretty quickly. But there's something better. There's something, an inexhaustible love in your heart for Christ. Treasure him. There's, a, there's an old uh, Scottish minister who wrote a sermon in the early 1800s. His name is Thomas Chalmers. And the title of his sermon was, listen carefully, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. And the whole point of his sermon was that if you want to expel sin out of your life, you need something stronger than that sin to be in your heart. And that's your new affection, an affection for Christ. And he says, as that new affection grows in your heart, it itself, not your willpower, not your decisions, that love for Jesus will expel those sinful habits in your life where you won't even want to do it anymore. You'll be sorrowful to the point of tears sometimes if you do fail because you will have feel like you have let down the Lord that you love so much. The expulsive power of a new affection. A lot more could be said about that, but I think it's important. It's the key to sanctification. Instead of focusing on the sin, I must not do X, I must not talk like that, I must not act like that, and focusing on the sin, focus on the Lord, focus on Jesus. Let that new affection be strong in your heart, and that old sin will have to leave. I believe that to be true. The second word is service. <clears throat> now you might be thinking, okay, pastor, what are you calling us to do, this treasuring of Jesus? You want us just to sit at his feet all day long and gaze with starry eyes upon him, contemplating how lovely he is and treasuring him, but we're of no earthly good. We don't care about, the, we don't do anything about the needy people in this world, materially needy, emotionally needy, and spiritually needy. Don't you know about all them? You can't just sit there and gaze at Jesus and say, I just treasure you, Jesus. Okay, I hear you. But I think it starts with treasuring Jesus. And I think the doing of those good things is propelled and strengthened and renewed by treasuring Jesus. <clears throat> I think we treasure Jesus by reclining at table with him and anointing him with something precious to us. And then we go and serve. And then we come back and we treasure him. And then we go and share the gospel with somebody. And then we come back and treasure him and then we go and give sacrificially. And we come into his presence and then we go out into the world. It's like breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in, breathing out. That's how you stay alive physically. 
And that's how you stay alive spiritually. Breathe in. Recline at table with him. Go out and serve. It's just back and forth all of our lives. I think treasuring the Lord will increase the poignancy and the power of our service in this world. Last point is witness. <clears throat> We're to be witnesses for Christ. We're to tell other people the gospel and to tell them about Christ. But you know what? We, wit we witness most effectively to our friends and our loved ones when it's evident that we love Jesus and that we treasure him. It's very powerful. We don't witness well when we merely master apologetic arguments. You know, the, the four reasons why we know he rose from the dead and the seven reasons why we know the Bible is inspired and the five basic reasons why we know there's a God. And that's apologetics, and it's good and it's fine. I love reading that stuff and trying to master those. But that does, that's not the power of your witness. It's your love for Jesus. People aren't dumb. It's evident to them if I just know all the arguments, but I don't really know my Savior. It's evident if I love Jesus or if I just love to win debates. We can't give away what we don't have. And if you want to give away and see the love of Christ appear in the, in, in the heart of someone who you love, we must first have it in our own hearts and give it away from that position. So let's treasure him and grow in that quality, our Lord and our Savior. You know, it's a frequent shortcoming of preachers to tell their people what they should do. You should treasure Jesus more. <clears throat> but we fail to tell their willing people how to do so and leave their people frustrated. Like, I want to, but how, how, can you help me? Can you equip me? Can you tell me how I can make progress in this? Next week, I'm away, but two weeks from today, we'll talk about a few of the how-tos just to wrap up this series. How to, how can I grow in treasuring Jesus? It's so important. It's always important to feel like you're making progress. We're going to uh, celebrate communion together now. Okay, so my whole sermon's been the introduction to breaking of bread. We're going to remember the Lord that we love and remember what he's done for us through the taking of the little wafer and drinking from the little cup that we use nowadays for communion. So if you have one with you, you can get that out. If you don't have one, you can slip your hand up and an usher will zoom it over to you. And uh, <clears throat> the bread speaks of his body, broken and given for us on the cross. The cup of juice speaks of his blood shed for us on the cross to wash away our sins. After I pray, you can open your two compartments of your little container and take the bread and the cup, and the worship team will, at an appropriate time, begin to lead us in a final song. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, Mary's act in the eyes of some was reckless, wasteful, and ill-advised. And yet we must admit, Lord, when you lay down your life on the cross for us unworthy and uncaring sinners, it could also be viewed as reckless, wasteful, and ill-advised. But now we understand that that reckless and extravagant act became the very foundation of our eternal salvation. It opened the way for us to come back to God. So now we take this bread, which represents your body, 
and its suffering for us. We take this cup of grape juice. It's just a little cup, but it speaks of a great price paid, a great salvation, and a great and precious Savior. Through these symbols, this bread and this cup, we thank and worship you. Amen.